Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the precious decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Look at your reflection in the mirror. You're a creature of the night, Bill, just like out of a comic book. You're a vampire, Bill. My own brother, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. You wait till mom finds out, buddy. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1987 summer horror classic, The Lost Boys, from Richard Donner Productions, distributed by Warner Brothers. It stars Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Diane Wiest, Corey Haim, and Jamie Gertz. Directed by Joel Schumacher, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 37 minutes. This marks the third episode of our Summer at the Cinema series, where all the movies we talk about take place during the summer. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Sam and Michael are all-American teens with all-American interests. Sam likes comic books. Older brother Michael likes girls. But after they move with their mother to peaceful Santa Carla, California, their relationship mysteriously begins to change. Sam still likes comic books. Michael now likes ghouls. Just wait till mom finds out. Want a movie with horror, humor, rock and roll? Then sink your teeth into the stylish, with it horror comedy, The Lost Boys. Filmmaker Richard Donner, whose lethal weapon brought a manic twist to buddy cop pictures, teams with director Joel Schumacher and producer Harvey Bernhard to give a right-now razor-toothed intensity to vampire tradition in this must-see shocker packed with heart-pounding terror, rib-tickling laughs and body-gyrating rock from In Excess and Jimmy Barnes, Lou Graham, Echo and the Bunnymen, and others. Also bringing new life to the age-old vampire lore is a superb cast including Corey Feldman, Jamie Gertz, Corey Haim, Edward Herman, Barnard Hughes, Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, and Diane Wiest. Stake out your evening's entertainment and thrill to vampirism in its hippest, funniest, and scariest. Party with The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys. That was what's on the box. Man, you're listing a lot of names and people in that description. No question about it, because this cast is loaded. All right, so The Lost Boys. What are our earliest memories of this film? Jason, start us off. Ah, Bill Bantz. Oh my God, 36 years ago, where was I? Well, I was 13 Going on 14 years old and going into my freshman year of high school, I did not see this film in the theater. This would be a cable watch for me a little after 1987, but the culture of The Lost Boys was most inescapable. It was a snapshot of the 80s. Man, I mean, just like it's mentioned repeatedly in the What's on the Box synopsis, this film is described yeah, as right now, with it and hippest. And also mention this synopsis, it had the style and, and of the times and the music of the times. So I remember all of that. Of course, I remember the theme track, Yes, Cry Little Sister by Gerard McMahon, being so popular with its angelic chorus and anthemic vibes. But this was a movie targeted specifically, it seems, at the teen demographic in that moment in 1987. And I was a teen in that moment. Now, I don't remember where I was when I saw it for the first time, but I remember the cast, 
of course, as we mentioned, I mean, namely Kiefer Sutherland, total badass, and his yellow vampire eyes as David, along with his bright yellow blonde spiked hair. I mean, he is the leader of the vampire biker gang. Spoiler alert. Jason Patrick as our main teen heartthrob protagonist, playing the role of Michael, who is uh, being transitioned into vampire in this film. And then, without a doubt, I was in love with Jamie Gertz, who plays the role of Star. I'll admit, I've had a crush on her ever since. I mean, I was not familiar at that time with her work in Quicksilver, Crossroads, or Less Than Zero. It was this film for sure that introduced me to her. And as I said, I've had a crush on her all the way through Twister in 1996. She looked great in that film too. I mean, my goodness, uh, the entire cast of this movie is pretty. That I remember. That's an early memory. It was loaded with the heartthrobs and they were all so cool. So to be completely honest though, the nostalgic attachment, if any, that I have for this film is really simply the strong 80s vibe. It's the feeling I get when I think of it. It's the sex, blood, and rock and roll and some comedy. There was that, you know, sexy danger and mystery of the vampires, the cool atmosphere of California, and the fun that Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, yes, the two Corys were having in their vampire hunting. I mean, what was not to like about this as a teenage kid? Thus, I remember liking the movie a lot, of course. It felt like it's like a darker vampire take on the Goonies. But I have to admit, although I have an attachment to the general vibe of the movie, I don't have any other real deep personal nostalgic attachment. As I said many times, I was not a big horror fan and I felt like for some region, reason, Bill Bant, I was felt like I was in between the ages of Sam and Michael in this, whom play the teenage brothers. And Sam, I believe, is like 13, 14. Michael's like 17, around that age. And even though I was 13, 14 watching this, I felt like I was a little older than Sam and a little younger than Michael. I was like in between and I didn't quite identify with either that closely. So I remember thinking this movie was fun and sexy and cool, but that's it. Not complicated. And uh, yeah, I hadn't seen it in a long time. I was really looking forward to the revisit for sure. That's all I got, Bill Bant. How about you for earliest memories? Yeah, for me, for earliest memories, I'll have to say they're pretty vague. Um, It was probably a late night cable watch, probably in 1988. I'm sure I was switching channels between this and maybe another movie if a scary moment was going to happen. But overall, the movie didn't really seem that scary when it was all said and done. I was a big fan of the 1931 Bela Lugosi Dracula. My dad had bought it one day because it was on sale for like a couple of bucks. And I got the courage to watch it. And that movie's really not scary at all. But the mood and atmosphere were great. And Lugosi made for a great Dracula. So... It became an annual Halloween tradition for me for many years to watch that movie. So I'm a fan of vampire movies. But as for The Lost Boys, I have to say I wasn't in love with it the first time I saw it. But my appreciation for the film has grown on its many rewatches. And I think it was because I was disappointed to find out, spoiler alert, that Max was the head vampire at the end. So Edward Herman, who played Max in the movie was in this movie in the early 80s that I used to watch all the time on HBO called Harry's War. And it was a movie, like I didn't understand it, but for some reason I just watched it all the time. So it was a movie about this guy called Harry who's literally taking on the IRS with a tank. And I just thought it was one of the most hilarious things. Because of that movie, I became a fan of Herman. So 
The next movie I would see him in was a TV movie, The Electric Grandmother, which I watched a handful of times. And then he would go on to play the president, FDR and Annie, uh, which my sister would watch over and over and over again. So I've probably seen Annie almost more than any other 80s movie, to be honest with you. So to me, there was no way Edward Herman was going to be playing the head vampire. We had the scene early in the movie where he passed the test. So that was just a shock and almost a disappointment to me. It was almost as bad as Ronnie Cox playing the baddie in RoboCop kind of thing. It's just like you're so used to someone playing this one character to see them switch over. You're just like, oh, now he's a bad guy now. So I think that kind of stung a little bit and uh, I didn't want to accept it. So I, th- I think that maybe might be why I punished the movie overall in the beginning. But um, I-, I learned to overcome over the years and have learned to appreciate The Lost Boys even more the more I watch it. So that's my earliest memory. That's great, man. That's funny. And I do appreciate the fact that you were able to overcome that that giant obstacle. Well done, Bill Ban. I'm proud of you, Thank man. You. And, uh, you know, Lots of steps. It's funny you make the comparison. To, yeah, right? One 80s movie at a time. And... It's funny you make that comparison to Ronnie Cox and RoboCop because I was going to say 1987, hell of a year for 80s movies. Oh, definitely. RoboCop comes out the same year. Yep. Fatal Attraction. I mean, this is a hell of a year for movies. This is a big year. So Lost Boys was right in the thick of it with the hits of 1987. Yeah, it's interesting, Bill, and I'm going to start off with my initial thoughts. Are you ready to get into this next segment? Yeah, go for it. Going to start off by saying that I also share the the vagueness of my early memories of this film, and that often will happen with movies. Not always. I'm not going to go that general, but it'll often happen with movies that don't have a great deal of substance, and so that's why I don't recall a lot of you know with a lot of specificity uh, certain you know scenes or moments or quotes from. A particular movie, or it could be that it just didn't hit me right. And that's the fact of the matter with this particular film is when I was saying I felt like I was in between the characters of Sam and Michael Emerson in this film. That's probably why it just for whatever reason, I understood the weight it carried as you know, within the zeitgeist of the 80s, like at that time, specifically 1986, when it was filmed, and then it comes out in 1987. But you know, it just didn't, I, again, was not a big vampire film fan or horror film fan. It just didn't hit me the way we here at our podcast, both Bill and I are very aware of the fact that this movie is huge oh, yeah, definitely. for so many people out there. It's a big one. And so we give it its props for that. And I will continue to do so throughout. The yeah, time. I think for me, just meeting so many people that love that movie and would start watching it mm-hmm. with them. That's what made me appreciate the movie more and more. This is definitely one of those movies. The more I watched it, the more I liked it. Gotcha. Makes complete sense. So here's an initial thought. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with flash over substance when the movie is aware of it, when the movie knows what it is. And I feel like this movie clearly knows what it is. And it is a snapshot of the times. It's basically a time capsule. In some ways, the hair, the music, the video store, the comic books, the current references, the like 1987 references galore. We have here the Donner Schumacher blend. Richard Donner is the executive producer of this film. He's loosely attached to the film, as we may get into in our facts and trivia. 
but Joel Schumacher is the director. And Schumacher definitely had his finger on the pulse of the 80s teen culture. And when you put Donner and then Schumacher together, I mean, boom, you got a hit here. I mean, Schumacher had done uh, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, but was really known for St. Elmo's Fire starring the Brat Pack. And now regarding Joel Schumacher, I mean, I'm personally a fan of some of his later work. You know, you get into 1990 or so and you get into Flatliners. I love Falling Down. I'm a fan of Phone Booth. But then there's also the whole Batman situation with Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. He took the Batman franchise in a different direction to many, many's dismay, but he had a different take on things. And I'm just going to give another quick shout out to our friend Marwan, who's a huge fan of 8mm <laughs> and likes to point out a major plot hole in that film. Every time you talk oh, about yeah, 8mm, he he's going to let you know about the big plot hole. It's just one of those Marwanisms we like to call out on our, we, we love Marwan. And then Richard Donner, of course, we know from 1978 Superman. Uh, in the 80s, we get into the toy, Lady Hawk, the Goonies, Lethal Weapon, and Scrooged. Uh, Scrooged, which we did recently here on this pod. Gosh, we look forward to doing everyone, except um, unfortunately, Superman's not in the 80s, but we're going to cover those other big hits that he directed. So, as I mentioned, he is credited as executive producer, kind of has was loosely attached to the film, but he did have a clear influence. And as I mentioned, the Goonies influence is, is really obvious in this film. Now, here's a major initial thought for you, Bill Band. Everything moves fast in this movie. This movie is, is specifically designed for the mind of a teenager with no attention span. Let's get to the instant gratification. There's the basic setup of a location, characters, plot, and then it's let's get on with it. Everybody meets and relationships are immediately forged and the action ensues. Spoiler alert, Michael, played by Jason Patrick, and Star, played by Jamie Gertz, look at each other and they share maybe two words and are basically an item. David, played by Kiefer Sutherland, who's the leader of the biker gang and, spoiler alert, leader of the vampire gang, uh, he sees Michael and looks at him and immediately says, hey, we're going to initiate you into the vampire gang. Oh, that was fast. Lucy, who's the mother of Michael and Sam. Lucy is a recent divorcee. She needs a job. So she meets Max at the video store, like on the first night they arrive and she gets a job and a date. Okay. Michael goes through a few brief trials of initiation into the vampire gang, drinks the blood or the uh, Kool-Aid, and now he's turning into a vampire. And after Michael attempts to attack his younger brother, Sam, Sam immediately knows that Michael's a vampire and he goes ballistic. It's all zero to 100 miles per hour. The filmmakers don't give a shit about development or emotional investment. They know we want to see pretty people doing some cool vampire shit and that we'll have fun figuring out how the younger kids are going to have to unravel this mystery of who's the head vampire in order to save Michael and the town. So let's get to the action. There you go. Here's another initial thought. The cast undeniable. It's a great cast. And as I said, very pretty and they look pretty cool. Their performances are good enough. The two Corys are charming and fun. Shout out to Jameson Newlander who plays Alan Frog. He gets no love, but we got to give him love. He plays a major role in this film. He's a, he's the brother of Edgar Frog played by Corey Feldman. So you get basically the two Corys, but they're kind of separated initially in this film. You have Corey Haim playing Sam, and then he meets Corey Feldman and Jameson Newlander playing the Frog Brothers. So there you go. Kiefer Sutherland, man, 
He perfected the searing, piercing gaze. He's so good. If anything, I mean, if there's any performance that's a standout, it's definitely Kiefer. He's great. I don't know what his character's purpose or motivation or background is whatsoever, but he's great. He's great. Can't not mention the swole, sweaty sax player. What in the holy hell? Oh, it's amazing. Props to the musician Tim Capello. There is a scene early on in this film that takes place on the Santa, the, uh, the fictional town, I should say, of Santa Carla. Not, I keep wanting to say Santa Clarita, but it's Santa Carla, which actually was shot in Santa Cruz. Put it all together, folks. In this fictional town, on the boardwalk, on the ocean side of Santa Carla, there is a grand stage where musicians perform, and there is this sweaty sax player playing a song as uh, Michael and Sam are looking on. And that's Tim Capello. Tim Capello, he's an American multi-instrumentalist and composer and vocalist. He uh, has done a lot of saxophone work supporting Tina Turner in the 80s and 90s. In this film, he performs the song Still Believe, which I believe is a cover, actually, and it is on the soundtrack. Here's another, uh, just anyway, ladies and gents, we all have to give a shout out to the sweaty sax. Oh, yeah. He just sticks out like a sore thumb. You're just like, what is going on? Muscle bound, oiled up. Oh, yeah, he's he's pumped, pumped Doing some little pelvic thrusts. He's got the ponytail, the slick back hair ponytail, and he's going for it. Oh, yeah. He's shaking his moneymaker up there, man. He's a saxophone player. Did you say saxophone? Yes, I did. Oh, brilliant. Bill Bat never ceases to amaze. Here's another initial thought. Not sure about Corey Haim's wardrobe in this film. It's of the times for sure, but still, it is bright and it is loud. Agreed. Hey, Jamie, <laughs> Jamie Gertz. I mean, look, if I were the character of Michael, if I were not Jason Masick, but Jason Patrick playing Michael, and I, I lay eyes upon this flower child that uh, is star- and, and she's a little hippie-ish, and she's clearly attached to the leader of a biker gang, yet she's flirting with me, and she kind of says my name a little bit weird, and there's just red flags everywhere. Hell yeah, I'm in. Totally attracted to these types of girls. Uh, by the way, I want to give up. This is going to be a strange tangent, Bill Bant, but just recently, I, I just uh, became a fan of a, a really good actress named Abigail Spencer that has had reoccurring roles on shows like Mad Men, Suits, Grey's Anatomy, Rectify. Totally has a Jamie Gertz vibe. I recommend you look her up, watch any show she's in. She's good. She's in quality programming. Just a random shout out to Abigail Spencer. So there's a lot of ghoulish laughter in this. I'm just calling that out. Sometimes without reason. I don't know. The vampires are simply a jovial folk enjoying their undead existence, apparently. Just laughing all the time. I do like the cinematography in this. The aerial swooping shots representing the flying vampire POV. They're pretty cool. The action's shot pretty well. There's some really nice stunts with the actors being snatched up by our uh, flying vampires. This most definitely has a Sam Raimi flair, maybe minus all the the Dutch tilt and crazy angles, but lots of POV shots and fast dolly or push-in close-ups. Very, very Evil Dead-esque. And Evil Dead 1 did come out before this because I was thinking, wait, Evil Dead 2 also came out in 1987. Yeah. But uh, Sam Raimi's first Evil Dead came out uh, before this. Regardless, hey, this was an initial thought. This took me by surprise. The scene with David and his vampire gang attempting to get Michael to kill, to feed, 
that scene is pretty brutal. They're like out in the desert and you've got like, uh, I don't know if they're like surfer Nazis or who they're supposed to be. They're like or dancing around a bonfire and the, the vampires attack and they basically tear them apart. And it's pretty gory. I was a little surprised. I had forgotten about that completely. And I'm going to just uh, finally here jump to right to one of my questions. And I asked you this before we started recording, Bill. Is there a director's cut of this somewhere out there? Because as much as I enjoy this, it feels like it's missing some scenes, which would provide some connective tissue and background and give it some depth. But bottom line, you know what? Who gives a crap? This is a romp. It's a horror comedy. It's fun. The action's cool. It's only an hour and a half. The running time's one hour 37. Well, you take the credits out, it's one hour 30, basically. They play fast and loose with the vampire lore big time. And shit just happens all of a sudden. But you go with it. I know what it is. It's candy for teenagers of a certain time. And that would have been the 80s. Does it hold up as a movie? Not really. Does it hold up as a classic piece of popcorn 80s zeitgeist, which is fun to return to? Hell yeah, absolutely, 100%. Still an enjoyable watch. Those are my initial thoughts. What about you, Bill Bent? Yeah, my initial thoughts. I think the Lost Boys did a lot for the vampire genre, because usually your vampires appear to be middle-aged men or beautiful dark-haired vixens. In this movie, all your vampires appear to be between the ages of 18 and 23, and we even have a child vampire in this movie, which is kind of cool. Yeah, there were teenage vampires in Fright Night, but they were turned in the course of the movie. This was different. We had these vampires from the get-go, and it's a group of vampires, which is something that wasn't normal for vampire films, unless it was the vampire's harem, where he had all his little hot vampire babes. Because we would see this later um, that year with Near Dark, This was something that wasn't really heavily explored at the time, like group of vampires together. So you had this one-two punch of the Lost Boys in Near Dark in the same year. So that was kind of crazy. It did follow most vampire tropes, but in this movie, garlic is not effective. I don't ever remember seeing a cross in this movie at all, because that's always usually the big thing. You hold a cross up to the vampire. A lot of holy water. Holy water is huge in this movie. That's a big thing. But that's to me, I (laughs) I don't think that would be a big thing for vampires because i'm like how do we know the water's really been blessed but hey that's the way they want to go i liked how the dogs played a role in this movie as protectors and detectors so you had the one that was protecting max when he was sleeping during the day and then the they would have nanook their dog that was kind of it was protecting sam from michael and then he would kind of bark when vampires are near or even uh, max's dog would bark when other vampires are near so i thought that was an interesting element we really didn't see anything with that before i agree with you jamie gertz was at her peak hotness in this film i think i forgot how beautiful she looks in this movie i mean i wouldn't have been keeping my eyes off her either if i was at the beach concert trying to look away from the saxophone player also with you i wrote the same thing down I want to give a shout out to Jamison Newlander, who played Alan Frog. He gets overshadowed by the two Corys, but he really does yeah. a good job as one half of the Frog Brothers. It's just that we just know who the two Corys are. We kind of forget who this other person was, but he's really good in it, too. And he brings a lot to the table and he's got some funny lines. I agree. I thought Alex Winter looked the coolest of the vampire troop, to be honest. Hmm. He added a little color to his wardrobe. He had the gloves, the hair. That all worked for him. Sorry, you mean by Alex Winter, you mean Bill S. Preston Esquire. Correct. Excellent. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. 
Yeah, he plays Marco in the movie. So, yeah, they nailed the casting of Keith Sutherland as the leader, David, of this vampire group. I don't think the movie works without him. He just looks perfect to the part, and he just plays it excellent, too. Props up to him. Um, so Sam and Michael, Corey Haim, and Jason Patrick play the brother angle, I thought, really well in this movie. Even though Sam is afraid of his brother and fears Michael may kill him, he knows it's his brother, and he ends up doing what he can to help him. Um, yeah, soundtrack, awesome. Cried Little Sister, I Still Believe. Echo and the Bunnymen's cover of People Are Strange. We have some In Excess, Run DMC's cover of Walk This Way, and even a cover of Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which surprised me at the end. I did not remember that song playing over the credits. At first I thought, I was like, is this a different track? But no, so that's part of the soundtrack. And then lastly, we have the beach town of Santa Carla, murder capital of the world. And I think there's only six adults over the age of 25 that live there. So we have the security guard at the beginning of the film who dies. So he could have been seven. Lucy, Max, Grandpa, the maitre d' at the restaurant, the mom who finds her lost child in the video store. And is that David Cross in the opening People Are Strange montage? The man in the hoodie? That looks like David Cross. Watch it. See if it looks like him. I'm pretty sure it's not. It's a doppelganger. But I just laughed out loud when I saw it. I'm like, oh my God, David Cross is in this movie? Yeah, there's not very many adults in this film, which I kind of found funny. But like you said, too, it's an 80s snapshot of that period. And it's a fun ride. So that's my initial thoughts of The Lost Boys. Oh, it's great stuff. Love it. Let's keep it rolling. Uh, move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some favorite scenes and moments from The Lost Boys? Well, I am going to start off with what I call Michael's initiation. And I'm putting a couple of scenes together, technically. Okay. So I'll try to roll through it. Give you a little background. Because I believe this entire sequence starts at around the 20-minute mark or so. But before that, we know that the Emerson family, that's Lucy, recently divorced, and her sons, Michael and Sam, her teenage boys, again, around the ages of, you know, 17 and 14, in that ballpark, they've just moved from Phoenix, Arizona to Santa Carla, California to stay at Grandpa's. They're going to stay at Grandpa's large rustic home in the nearby countryside. But the real scene of Santa Carla is the boardwalk. And that is right on the ocean, and it's got the roller coasters, the arcades, the comic book shop, the video store, and a full stage with musical performances and shirtless, sweaty men playing saxophones. So Michael and Sam, our teenage boys and brothers, they waste no time getting in the middle of it. They get in the thick of it as we uh, see them watching along with the crowd, uh, the musical act, and they're hanging around for a bit. That's when Michael lays eyes upon Star, a beautiful flower child in the crowd. He can't stop staring at her, and she eventually returns a few looks and appears to be interested. And Michael sees Star get onto a motorcycle with David. That's Kiefer Sutherland, and they ride off. Cut to the following night or so when... Sam is, Corey Haim, is in the comic book shop, and Michael manages to run into Star once again. They exchange introductions and are clearly attracted to one another. When, once again, David and his biker gang show up, David tells Star to get on his bike, and we have three really pretty people stare at each other for a few minutes, and then she obeys. She gets on the bike with David, clearly taking commands from him. However, David tells Michael to come with them to Hudson's Bluff overlooking the point. 
which is a bit of a challenge because Michael's got a bike of his own. He's got his own micro motorbike, but he knows he's not going to be able to beat them in a race. And no, David's like, no, 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 man, you just got to keep up. So Michael attempts to keep up on his own motorbike, cut to little uh, bike montage, cruising along the sand, along the beach. We're listening to Lost in the Shadows by Lou Graham. Good old 80s action montage of the boys on bikes. There's a really cool transition I want to call out here because they get kind of lost in the fog and there's some cool sound design as you see the headlights from their bikes in the night and then it kind of blends in with the fog and it all, yeah, just kind of blends in together and it transitions to a shot of the cliff. And here now we see that our boy is on bikes and meanwhile Star is on the back of the bike with David. They're playing a little chicken. They're coming up real fast on the edge of this cliff. And as they approach the edge, Michael is like, uh, no, that's not for me. And he purposefully crashes his bike before going over. Then he gets up and goes right after David, punching him and says, and David just looks right at him and gives him that Kiefer Sutherland stare and smile and says, how far are you willing to go, Michael? And David proceeds to take Michael down into the biker gang lair, which is basically this really cool, this remnants of this like old resort collapsed as a result of the earthquake of 1906. It's a great setting and it's a cave and it's like it's underground dwelling where this gang resides. It's just a really cool hang or setting and a sweet hangout. And uh, you see them walking around and basically David's giving Michael the tour and he says, that's what I like about this place. You ask and you get because he's giving like his other gang members like kind of, hey, bring me some food and things like that. They bring whatever he wants. And David is immediately grooming Michael. He's giving the tour, selling him on being there. And now there is a brief scene in here that is intercut in between here where Luce, with Lucy and Sam. But basically they come right back to this cave dwelling. And upon returning to the scene, David encourages Michael to share in some Chinese food. But when Michael eats the rice, David tells him he's eating maggots. Michael then sees maggots and he spits the rice out immediately, only to realize, well, it's still rice. So obviously, David has some power of suggestion. Hmm. Now, the same happens again when David is eating from a box of noodles that appears to be worms. Lovely. Finally, David opens what appears to be a harmless bottle of some elixir red wine liquor and says to Michael, drink some of this, Michael. Be one of us. But before Michael drinks it, Star warns him and says he doesn't have to, that it's blood. But obviously, Michael, either looking to impress Star to fit in or to prove himself to David, takes a few swigs from the bottle and he begins to feel different. David then takes Michael and the rest of his gang up to a set of train tracks running across a bridge high above the ground. Michael doesn't know what's going on at this point, but they soon show him as one by one, each of the four members of David's gang, including himself, that's David, jump right off the side of the bridge. They just don't jump off. You can't even see the ground. It's just hidden in fog. Michael looks over, like almost in horror, to see that, oh, they didn't just drop to the ground. They're holding onto these crossbars beneath the train tracks, beneath the bridge. They're just hanging freely, dangling feet, swinging so high off the ground. And David calls to Michael, telling him to come on down. And he does. Michael climbs below, hangs onto a crossbar. Now all five of them are hanging free when suddenly, of course, a train comes. And now, understandably alarmed, Michael feels the intense vibration from the train crossing the tracks. Michael begins to freak out for fear of losing his grip. Surprisingly, then, 
One by one, the gang members let go of their grips and they just drop into the nothingness below. Now Michael is losing his mind like, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? And then David pleads with him saying, let go. You're one of us now, Michael. When David then himself lets go, falling into the fog below. Finally, Michael is too weak to pull himself up and can no longer hold on. And he's forced to let go and he falls, but travels through the fog in somewhat of a dream state and then like returns to a falling, you know, in screaming. And then he like is floating again. And it's just a strange sensation as he falls through the fog. And finally, he simply wakes up on his bed. He's back at grandpa's house and it's 2 p.m. the following day. So it's just cool. It's a way, it's a way into the world of the vampire gang and they haven't revealed that they're vampires quite yet. So if you knew nothing about this movie and like had no idea what the movie was about and you were going into this, you wouldn't technically know that David, a.k.a. Kiefer Sutherland and his boys were vampires. But clearly they're part of some sort of uh, cult and they've got some sort of power. And David is uh, wielding it over Michael a little bit and trying to get Michael to join their group. And it's the initiation. So it's just kind of cool because Michael obviously is in a new town and he's trying to fit in and he's taking on the challenge. And clearly he's into Star and wants to be with her. So that all plays into it. But uh, yeah, some cool sequences, some great performance by Kiefer Sutherland. He commands. He's got the presence. He's got the look. That is actually, I forgot to put it in my earliest memories, but I do remember the sequence of them hanging beneath the train tracks because it gives you a little bit of vertigo. It's a little scary. And with nothing below you, you kind of put yourself in their shoes hanging there above. And I'd be like, no way in hell would I let go. But Michael has no choice. So there's some intense moments. It's a good way to not only initiate Michael, but initiate the audience here as to a little bit of what's going on with this gang. Yeah, Jason, I had the bridge scene down as one of my favorite scenes. But then I realized in order to talk about the bridge scene i would have to talk about the initiation anyway so you kind of kind of went over i was going to go over initially i just remember watching the bridge scene this time dave and his gang are on the bridge and they're with michael and it's kind of those why are we out here and they're all kind of making fun of michael because they know that michael is now one step closer to becoming one of them but michael has no clue and then they literally just jump off the bridge And Michael's just there like, what the fuck just happened? And then he kind of looks under the bridge and sees them all hanging there. And I don't know why he joins them, but he has to climb down and hang on that bar too. And then you have the train coming by. And I'm like, holy crap, that's got to be one of the scariest things ever. Because when you look down, it's just all fox. So you have no idea how far this drop is. And I'm, I'm thinking the same thing, too. If I'm hanging like that, how the hell am I going to pull myself back up? Especially the longer you hang, the harder it's going to be. And then the four of them just, okay, let go, let go, just for fun. And now Michael's there by himself thinking, oh, my God, I can't pull myself back up. I'm going to die with these other four guys. Why did I do this? And then all you hear through the fog is, Michael, 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 let go, Michael, let go. And you just met these guys. Why would you trust them? I don't know why you would follow them through all this to begin with, but why would you trust them to let go? And he has no other choice. And when he falls, like you said, too, you almost have that moment where he almost knows how to fly 
but then he falls back into a, a free fall again. But then you don't see the outcome because he just ends up on his bed. It was a cool transition because now you don't know what has happened in those six or seven hours or eight hours. It's all we have to fill in the blanks and figure this out. It's a pretty good initiation scene. I like it a lot. And that actually takes me to my second favorite scene. And it is Nanook saves the day. And who's Nanook? Nanook is uh, Sam and Michael's dog. More like Sam's dog. So at this point, Michael is really not sure what happened to the night before. And he's been asked to watch Sam as their mom, Lucy, has, is going out with a date with Max, who I've explained earlier is the head vampire, but we don't know that at all. So Michael doesn't want to watch Sam, but his mom insists to do it because Michael really wants to go and go find Star and, and figure out what the hell happened to him last night. And he's noticing he's a lot more sensitive to light, so he's wearing sunglasses all the time. And Sam's up in the bathroom taking a bath. It's like, they don't have a shower? I don't know, but that's fine. So Sam's up in the bathroom taking a bath. The dog, Nanook, is literally sitting there on the side of the bathtub with Sam and Sam's listening to music. Um, I think he's listening to Ain't Got No Home. A lot of good songs in this movie. And he's singing along and the bubble bath and doing all that stuff. Michael's downstairs and he goes into the kitchen to get himself some milk. And all of a sudden he just has like this wrenching pain, which is so bad he just buckles over and drops the milk all over the floor. He doesn't even try to pick it up. So what's happening is he's getting the hunger. He's getting the hunger of being a vampire, but he doesn't, he doesn't know this. He doesn't understand what's going on. So now we have this intercutting of Michael senses there's a person in this house that he can kill in order to uh, satisfy this craving. And unfortunately, it's his brother. So it's intercutting of Michael slowly going up the stairs to attack Sam in the bathroom. And like he's trying to fight this, but he can't because he doesn't understand what is going on with him. And at the same time, the further up the stairs he goes, of course, Sam is in there. He's he's taking a bath. He's screaming really loud, singing along. and He can't hear anything. But Nanook, the dog. Oh, wait, there's something uneasy in this house. And I'm not sure what it is. And Nanook starts staring at the door. And then we see Michael come up to the door and he's standing on the other side. And he's fighting this urge to open the door, but he can't because he doesn't understand what is going on. And then we have the shot of Michael. He opens the door ready to attack Sam and Sam literally dunks under the into the tub. So he doesn't even see that this has happened. And when he opens the door, Nanook knows right away that Sam's in danger and he attacks Michael. He literally dives at him and knocks him down the stairs and Sam gets out of the water and notices the door's open. Nook's gone. He, he hears this this noise and he, and he jumps out of the tub, puts it down, runs downstairs and, and sees his brother at the bottom of the stairs holding onto his hand. And literally you see bite mark. The dog literally bit through Michael's hand. And of course, Sam's all mad at Michael. He's like, what do you do to my dog? What do you do to your dog? And now it's starting to dawn on Michael like, oh, okay, something terrible is happening to me. Because he tells Sam, I think your dog was trying to protect you. He's like, what do you mean he's trying to protect you? He's like, he's trying to protect you from me. And Sam's like, what? What What are you, batshit crazy or something? And at that point, Michael stands up and Sam notices there's a huge mirror. And he's like, oh my God, look at your reflection. Michael looks ghostly in the reflection. And Sam realizes because he's talked to the Frog Brothers about vampires that, oh my God, I think my brother has turned into a vampire. 
So that starts that whole ball rolling of now Sam's afraid of his brother because his, his brother's become or becoming a vampire and he doesn't know what to do. It's like, he's my brother, but at the same time, my brother could kill me at any second. And if it wasn't for my dog, who knows where I'd be at right now? So I thought it was a pretty cool scene, a little bit of a intense moments, probably one of the more tense moments of the film, but it also shows at the end that, even though Sam's, you know, scared shitless of his brother, he is going to eventually try to help him and get through this uh, ordeal. Oh, yeah, no question about it. That's where I actually liked the sequence here, what was to follow. The relationship, I should say this much, the relationship between Sam and Michael, I did like very much in this movie. I think actually the family dynamic between the both of them and their mother, Lucy, works pretty well. I buy it. Corey Haim and Jason Patrick do have chemistry and a connection in this film, which I think is great. And later on, like in the what happens afterward, when you know Michael is continuing to find different qualities and powers, etc., as he's transitioning into a vampire, eventually Sam, of course, is freaking out and he calls the Frog Brothers and and such, and he's seeking advice and whatnot, and his mom is on the phone, and he's freaking out with her and telling her to come home, and she has to break off her date with Max, etc. Basically, then Michael comes, because he's trying not to fly outside of the window, but comes back inside and is huddled with his brother Sam, saying, you need to, we have to stick together, you know, you have to help me, etc. So, and Sam will do that out of brotherly love, but uh, great scene. I glad you picked it. It is intense. Uh, some great dog acting. Uh, shout out to, is it Cody? Is that the name of the dog? I oh forget. yeah. I don't uh, know. It's in the credits somewhere. Kobe or Cody. Um, Cody sounds right. But Nanook also a great name for a dog. It's such a great device and it works every time when you see the vampire films, when the animals react adversely to adversely to the, uh, the vampires or Terminators, if you will. Yeah, it's intense because you see Sam in that in the, the bath and he's totally vulnerable. Maybe that's why they decided to put him in a bathtub, which is just, it was kind of odd that he's taking Yeah, I think it'd be bath. weird to put but, him in a shower though because then you can't really... Yeah, yeah, maybe it was for choreography or for yeah. uh, to camera setups, etc. So, but yeah, Jason Patrick, totally believable as he's going through it and he's so confused and... Yeah, he's transitioning. So cool effect with the, the ghostly you know image in the mirror. The action is directed well. It's tense. It's tight and a little scary. You know when the dog attacks, I was actually frightened because I hadn't forgotten what exactly happened. I was like, oh man, don't tell me that Michael killed the dog. Right. I, for a moment there, I was like, uh oh, is that happen in this movie? Does the dog die? Because that's not good. That's not going to fly with me. But that was not the case. In this case, Nanook got the best of Michael. Good scene, Bill. I appreciate it. Funny enough, we're going to keep with the theme because my next scene is actually more, uh, I called it a moment, but it is like a mini scene. So I'll just call it the Cujo mini scene. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought this was scary. It's featuring Thorn, the dog, the other dog in this film. This is Max's dog. Now, we know Max is the owner of the video store on the boardwalk, and he has taken a liking to Lucy, who came in and was looking a little desperate, and he offered her a job at the store, which she accepted, and a little bit more, offered to take her on a date, and 
what has happened here is that they were going to go to a nice restaurant and, and enjoy their date. But what we were just describing happens back at Grandpa's house between Michael and Sam. Michael's transitioning into a vampire. All hell breaks loose. And Lucy, before she sits down to dinner, before she even really gets into the restaurant, calls Sam. And Sam is losing his mind because his brother's turning into a vampire. So she rushes home and breaks the date. She basically, in a way, stands up Max and decides she needs to apologize. So Sam happens to be in the truck with her and she drives over to Max's house and is going to bring in a bottle of wine. She goes to the front gate and she's saying something to Sam in the effect. She's like, you know, you're the one who should be bringing him this and apologizing, actually, because you're the reason why I had to break this date. So she's like, you know what? I can't leave this bottle of wine outside the front gate. Somebody might take it. So she reaches over the gate, undoes the latch and then goes through to walk up the walkway to the front door of the house to drop off the bottle of wine for Max. And we assume either Max is not there or is inside. It's in the middle of broad daylight. But who is there outside the front door? That would be Thorne. That would be Max's dog. I don't know what breed of dog, but anyway, Lucy immediately is like, oh, hey, Thorne. And, well, Thorne is not uh, having it not uh, wanting any guests at this time and starts growling and she's like, "Uh Oh, and then he lunges and she goes back and drops the bottle immediately and starts running. And this is just a quick scene. And I'm, my description has taken longer than the actual scene. So she starts running back down the walkway and screaming. And in the midst of this, we see Sam back in the truck who happens to be reading one of the comic books that the frog brothers has recommended for him for his vampire education as part of this vampire series. And in the middle of this particular, I think it's called Vampires Everywhere, something like that. It's uh, Hellhounds or something. Right. As, uh, Hounds of Hell. Hounds of Hell. And he looks up to see his mother frantically running from this attacking, what seems to be almost like rabid dog, screaming like, Sam, Sam. And she's running away from the dog. So he throws the comic book down you know, and takes the glasses off anyway, cuts back to... Lucy, this is Diane Weist, who's wonderful, actually, and she's running away from the dog, gets to the front gate door, literally jumps over it, on top of it and over it, and you think she's going to be okay as Sam exits the truck, runs up to her to comfort her, but Thorne's not done. He almost bursts through the gate, and he is barking. You have to understand, there's some nice sound design with the music, the score here, where there's this low... as the dog is barking, 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 and almost breaks through the front gate door. Uh, he breaks a couple of the pan, you know, the panels or whatever, but doesn't make it all the way through. And then it just cuts right to the next scene, which is the comic book shop on the boardwalk with Sam explaining to the Frog Brothers what had just happened and his whole theory now on, on what's happening to, uh, from his perspective. Short scene, Thorn attacks uh, Lucy, or at least attempts to get a bite of her. He, he got a little bit of her dress that she was wearing, but that's it, thankfully, for Lucy. It's intense. It's kind of scary. I, I thought that was uh, pretty well done. Yeah, I did like that scene because with vampire lore, usually you have vampires will turn into bats or they'll turn into werewolves, but I never knew that they technically had guard dogs that would protect them during the day so they can sleep in peace. That's something I had not seen before or something I had read before. So to see that in action here 
something new I've learned about vampire lore. So I thought it was pretty cool. That dog, man, that was uh, one intense dog. And yeah, you really thought it was going to go right through the gate because she flips over and the dog grabs her, grabs her dress, tears a part of it off. And then she just falls literally on the other side of the gate. And she's still close enough that he could claw at her or something but he's so busy trying to get through it luckily sam gets over in time and pulls her away yeah and i'm glad you brought up the the lore aspect of things because i have uh some i take some issue with the lore in this film just because it seems a little all over the place but it doesn't matter because it's just freaking fun and there's enough of it in there but there was that addition that i was not aware of as you mentioned and it they talk about it in the following scene, as I mentioned, when Sam goes back to the comic book shop, because I didn't know there was such a thing as a daytime protector is what right. they call it. And I thought they were referring to Edward Herman's character, Max, as the daytime protector. There's a, usually a daytime protector that looks over the vampires as they sleep during the day just to keep watch. And I thought they were speaking of Max being the daytime protector. And spoiler alert, we know that actually Max is the head vampire. So I'm wondering now, because that's, again, there's a little confusion with the lore here, but it's the idea of a daytime protector for vampires is cool. I like the concept, but I'm now wondering after describing this, is is Thorn simply the daytime protector? Yes. I didn't catch it the first time, but when I watched it again, it made more sense. Mm-hmm. he's basically just keeping anyone out of the house so they don't discover Max in his coffin or whatever he uses to sleep during the day. Right. I hate to be the mailman in that neighborhood. <laughs> what else you got here, Bill Bant? Yeah, so I'm almost jumping to the next scene. It's uh, Max comes to dinner. Oh, great. This is kind of one of the humorous elements of the movie. So, you know, as we've mentioned, Max had asked Lucy out to a date. Lucy ends up breaking the date because of a phone call she makes with Sam. So Lucy says, hey, I apologize. Why don't you come over for dinner? And at this point, Sam has the theory that Max is the head vampire based on what's happened with her mom being attacked by the dog. So she explains this to the Frog Brothers and the Frog Brothers are like, let's make sure that he's the head vampire. And as soon as we have proof that he is, we'll stake him right there and, and call it a night and no more vampires in Santa Clara. Lucy's making this dinner for what she thinks is her boys and Max so they can meet Max also. But of course, Michael's got to go out because he's got to figure out what the hell's going on. And he goes to the front door and opens it and standing right there is Max. And Max goes, oh, you must be Michael. He's like, yeah, Michael. And Max comes back with, well, since you're the man in the house, I'm not going to come in unless you invite me. Uh Oh, and Michael invites him in, which comes into play later in the movie. So Max comes to the house, he brings some flowers, and they're doing some little sweet talk. And then Sam comes into the room and he's like, oh, I have dinner guests with us. And it's the Frog Brothers, Edgar and Alan. And they've worked out these tests that they're going to play on Max to see if he is a vampire. The scene starts innocent enough. They're all sitting around the table. And Lucy says something like, oh, man, what's that smell? Who's got the bad breath? And we learn earlier when Sam tells the Frog Brothers that he thinks his brother's a vampire, they ask him a series of questions. And one of the questions is, does your brother have bad breath? And Sam jokes, well, well, he's always had bad breath, so I'm not really sure. So, of course, when Lucy says that, everyone starts staring at Max to see if he's the one with bad breath. But it's actually the nook at the table and he's panting and Lucy can smell it. So she pushes him away. So 
test one is kind of a fail. So they go into test two, which is they're having a pasta meal. And Sam basically says to Max, hey, um, do you want some cheese on your pasta? And Max is like, yeah, sure, I'd love it. And he's like, here, I made it myself. And Max tries to throw a compliment at Sam, like, oh, budding chef, that's awesome. So he's dumping what he thinks is all this cheese on his pasta. And then when he goes to eat it, he starts choking. And, of course, the Frog Brothers get all excited. And you find out it wasn't cheese that he's put in the pasta. It was garlic. Oh, I bet you hate garlic, don't you? And Max is like, no, I love garlic. This is just way too much garlic, so I, I can't handle it. So test two has now failed. So at that point, Sam gets water that he's going to give to Max to wash down the garlic. And he acts, well, purposely dumps it into his lap, thinking that the water will burn the vampire. This is one of the things the Brock Brothers does. And Max gets up and he's like, whoa. And they go, oh, I bet that water burns. And Max is like, no, the water's actually cold. And he's just trying to wipe it off him. And, and Lucy's like, Sam, what's going on? Why are you acting this way? And at that point, the Frog Brothers take off and shut all the lights out in the house. And they have a quick discussion, like, none of these tests are working. And it's like, all right, we're going to try this one last test and we'll see if it works. And what they do is they get a, a mirror and literally put it in front of Max's face. And when they turn the lights back on, Max sees his reflection, jumps back scared. It's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And now the fourth test has failed. And Max is like, okay, all right, I get it. I know what you, you guys are up to. And of course, all the kids are in a panic because they're like, oh, crap, maybe he's onto the fact that we're trying to test him to see if he's a vampire. And Max goes on to explain, he's like, Sam, I'm not trying to take the place of your dad. I'm just trying to be a friendly companion to your mom and just be a friend of yours. You know, why don't I just go home and tells Lucy, like, you know what? Just next time, cover my place. We'll finally have a nice, quiet dinner together. So all the tests have failed at this point. We don't think Max is the head vampire. At least I didn't think Max was the head vampire. But it's a very amusing scene, which... We learned that they totally effed it up by inviting Max in to begin with. Yeah, that's right. And it is. this is where you get some nice lighthearted comedy and some great antics by the Frog Brothers and Sam trying to catch Max in the moment as a vampire. But unsuccessfully, just every, they, every you know, it's all coming. like they just unabashedly just go for it. Yep. Every test. It doesn't matter how embarrassing what or whatnot. So brave of them to attempt it, but yeah, to no avail. Uh, it's a fun scene for sure. Gives this film a little little levity, which is nice. It's Again, this is a technically like a black comedy. It's a horror comedy. Got to have some comedy in there somewhere. Yeah, I've got one last scene. And for me, I am calling it Time to Slay Some Vampires. Oh, okay. Because I, I had a yeah. moment. So we might, let's see if we got some crossover here. Okay, cool. So at this point now... It's all coming to a head here. We know that uh, Michael is transitioning and uh, the only way to reverse the transition to get him back to a normal human state is to kill the head vampire. Uh, We also know that his love interest star and the young child uh, vampire Laddie, they both are also transitioning. Well, they're going to try and root out the head vampire. And the only way they can do that is to go on the offensive. They're going to go to the vampire lair at the bluff into the cave and go after the sleeping vampires. So Michael leads the way, taking the grandpa's car 
and takes Sam and the Frog Brothers, Edgar and Alan, to the Vampire Lair. And they descend into the cave, but they first find Star and Laddie are actually there asleep. Well, they split up here. Michael decides that he's going to take both Star and the young child, Laddie, out of the cave and put them into the car. Meanwhile, uh, and we you understand that in the middle of the transition in here, the transitioning, I should say, that but Michael, Star, and Laddie, because they're not feeding, they're rather weak. So they're tired and drowsy, and Michael's having a hard time even carrying them to the car. So they're struggling a bit. But meanwhile, we have Sam, Edgar, and Alan climbing through a narrow passageway to a dark cavern uh, within this cave, and it's freezing. And at first... I mean, they just can't find the vampire coffins. That's what they're looking for. They're trying to find some sleeping vampires. It's the middle of the day, and this is the perfect time because the vampires are going to be vulnerable. That's when you can kill them. But as they are shining their flashlights all around and all about looking for the coffins, one of them shines it up above, and Edgar screams out, like, holy hell, you know, Jesus Christ, and they see... Up above them, the four vampires, David, Marco, and the other two, are hanging upside down from the rafters in this cave in the darkness. And Edgar does say, yeah, we have to kill them now when they're most vulnerable. So Edgar and Alan begin to climb back up this ladder to uh, the nearest and smallest vampire, which happens to be Marco, played by Alex Winter. And Edgar stakes him right through the chest and it is graphic he just shoves that stake right through him and immediately all of this like brown green black goop starts drenching them and spraying everywhere coming from the innards in the body of marco the vampire and he is screaming in agony eventually you have Edgar and alan descend the stairs they get to the, or the ladder and they get to the bottom and marco the vampire drops and falls on top of him uh, the three boys, and he's still yelling and screaming. That's Marco, who is just spewing his vampire blood everywhere until we assume he finally dies. And now the rest of the vampires have awoken, and they're yelling, and they are pissed because one of their fellows has fallen, especially David, who looks down at the boys and says, you're dead meat. So the boys attempt to scramble out by climbing up the ladder. And meanwhile, David drops down. This is a really cool moment. David drops down, landing on his feet, and then immediately jumping up to where the boys are trying to climb out the passageway they came in. And it's just a really cool effect of David jumping back up. And you can tell probably they shot it in reverse, but it still looks really cool as if he is almost floating up onto the uh, the ledge. And... We get really uh, great close-ups on David and his Kiefer Sutherland's makeup here and the yellow eye contacts that he's wearing. He just looks great as a vampire. And so now it's just pure chaos because we have the kids screaming. We have the flashlights crossing beams and flashing everywhere. David is roaring. There's a nice sound design moment where David, now leaping up onto the ledge and chasing through the passageway, roars. And then the roar actually changes into his yell, his human yelling. It's just really kind of a cool, uh, subtle thing they do there. And so David's chasing them through the passageway. David gets a hold of Sam's leg. He's grabbing at his leg. 
And now it's just intense. And the boys are trying to hold on to Sam and they're trying to pull him out of the exit. Meanwhile, Dave is trying to drag him back in, yelling at him. And so there's roaring and screaming. And you mentioned, Bill, earlier that there's no crosses in this film. And this is the one time you briefly see Sam do the cross fingers, with his fingers. Yeah. He's <laughs> trying to be like, get away. And finally, Edgar and Alan are drag Sam into the light, into the sunlight that's shining down into this cavern or cave. And the sun finally hits the hand of David and it sets his hand on fire. And of course, David screams out, yanking his hand back, letting go of Sam. So the boys and Sam escape and you just get another great close up on David and his face. And just as he's just like snarling and you get those vampire teeth and the pale makeup and the yellow eyes and the blonde like mohawk he's got. It's just he looks like a total badass and he is mad. So very intimidating. Anyway, the boys manage to escape up the top and they get to the car, but Michael's passed out now with Star and Laddie and (laughs) Sam hops into the driver's seat and he's like, get in. And it's just a funny moment because we get the the Frog brothers looking at each other and I believe it's Alan that says, uh, we don't ride with vampires. (laughs) And Sam goes, fine, stay here. And then Edgar's like, well, we do now. Yeah. And they hop in and take off. It's fun. Uh, there's some good gore in it. It's really intense with David chasing these boys through that really narrow, crawling through that narrow passageway and trying to pull Sam back inside. Stakes are high at that point. No pun intended. Yeah, it's a good scene. You got to give some credit to the Frog Brothers. Like I said, they're Sam's age, so they're like 13, 14 years old. And the fact that they're brave enough to go into this cave and stake one of the vampires... That was impressive. That was actually my moment. Just the fact that when they stake Marco and just all yeah. that crap that just comes out of his body. Because normally when you watch Spewing yeah, everywhere. Normally when we watch a vampire movie, they open the coffin and they stick and you see a little bit of blood and then maybe it'll turn into dust, but he just goes batshit crazy and just flopping all over where and just dumps enough we'll just say blood over the uh, Frog Brothers and Sam to last a lifetime. So that was kind of a cool moment for me. Overall, it's pretty good. Like you said, too, that Michael's so weak, but it's also during the daylight, too. So they're not affected by the sun as much as David and his crew are. But, yeah, it certainly weakens them on top of the fact that they're trying to feed also. So they're really super weak. And the fact that they've been able to hold out for this long is impressive. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends over at Back to the 80s Radio. Radio is so much different than it was in the 80s. We had it all. The music, the movies, the DJs, and morning shows. Back to the 80s Radio is a show from the 80s in podcast form. We bring the memories from that awesome decade back. Join Toscano and Chang every Friday as they take you on a ride back in time, sharing their experiences and laughs. Stop on by and discover some of the wacky things this crazy duo comes up with. They talk about it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly of the greatest decade. Don't miss Back to the 80s Radio. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Now back to our show. All right. Did you have anything else for favorite scenes? Or no, that was it back? for me. So we can move on cool. to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have steak yeah, holes. So it does not have those steak holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right. What do you got for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, this is interesting, Bill Bant, because this is a Swiss cheese item it is a whole but it maybe isn't a whole and it's because of the way we've kind of broken it down thus far which i really appreciate and my whole is the vampire lore here's the deal this is the reason why i've come to appreciate it now because we are covering it and we're talking about it in real time i'm appreciating it because they took some chances here and they wanted to mix it up a little bit they didn't want to make this film Obviously, super traditional. I think you mentioned earlier, Bill Bant, like you're a fan of the classic Bela Lugosi, those old vampire films, or you know, your Nosferatu and and etc. And there are the standard vampire lore, the tropes, right? So I give this film credit for trying to mix it up a little bit, but it does get a little confusing at the same time. Like the stake through the heart, the stake through the chest. Now I guess it doesn't have to be a wooden stake. Usually it does have to be wooden, if I'm not mistaken. That's changed over the years. As long as you pierce the heart. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you use. But traditionally, yeah, it was the wooden stake. And then, as you mentioned also, we know that the holy oil works, but garlic apparently doesn't. Correct. That's kind of new. So that's something. Right. So they kind of switched that up. And we know that they don't see their reflection in the mirror. They can't survive in the sun. We don't have any turning into bats in this movie. No bats. No transformations. The lore stuff kind of comes and goes. I'll get into it a little bit in my complaints, I believe. But uh, I think that was really my whole, but not a whole whole, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Nope, I understand. Uh, My first complaint is a minor one. Uh, That poor security guard in the beginning. (laughs) That poor guy's car has got to be parked in the farthest part of the lot. You know, he's the last one working. Park him somewhere closer to the boardwalk. Right. You could have saved his life if he was just parked 100 feet closer. That's the complaint? Because that's amazing if that's... that's yeah, it. I felt bad. Yeah, that's it. All right. No, I, I totally agree. That poor son of a bitch. <laughs> and then the fact he thought he was going to open the door without keys. I don't know what he was thinking there. I mean, he was in panic. I don't mode. know what he was thinking there. And then on top of it, it's a really cool effect. Like I mentioned, they do a really cool job of the, the snatch up. Yes. Or a snatch away effect. This is a trope, a common trope in many, 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 many horror films, including a short film called Desolate Road, in which yours truly gets snatched away, which was a lot of fun. I remember Marwan insisting on having that shot in the film. It's one of his favorite tropes in these types of of movies, and we got to do it, and it was a blast. Regardless, in this film, that's the cold open, is the security guard getting snatched up before he can get into his car. 
uh, his loan car in way, 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 way in, out in the parking lot. But here's a nitpicky complaint about it is that I just thought it was funny because they snatch him up as he's trying to get into the driver's side of the vehicle. And not only do they yank him up into the air, but he pulls the entire car door off of the car as he gets yanked up. And I was like, how did he manage to do that? Yeah, he's not that strong. (laughs) Because he doesn't have super strength. The vampires might be. (laughs) But it still looked cool. It It looked really cool. I was expecting to just see blood all over the car, but we just lost the door instead. Because I was like, oh, shit. He got yanked up into the the air. And the cool thing is it's very eerie because we don't see, we never actually see the flying vampires until a little bit in the final action sequence. But there you don't see it. It's just like an unknown enemy from above. But I was like, oh, he took the door with him. Yeah, well, that's yeah. like that's kind of a happy accident how he, how, that that happened. Oh, is that in the trivia? Yeah, because of the budget was a lot less than they expected. So they couldn't do a lot of flying scenes of the actors. So they just did, hey, we'll just do POVs instead. I thought you were talking about the actor yanking the oh, door no, off no, the no, car no, was a happy no. accent. Like that happened right. by he was accident. So strong like it was a anyway, prop yeah. door or something. And it just fell off yeah. the car as he like yanked him up like the stunt. It's like, oops, that wasn't supposed to come off. <laughs> uh, my first complaint is when, when Sam is talking to the Frog Brothers in the comic book shop and they're trying to put together the pieces here and try to figure out what to do about Michael and who's the head vampire. It just feels like Sam pulls this out of thin air because he start, he goes, this all started when my mom went to work at Max's video store. What? Uh, why would you say that? Because that's not true at all. I would think it pretty much started when your brother was about to attack you when you were in the bathtub and your dog attacked him instead. That's probably when it all went to hell for you. Like it, I was just like, how would Sam know it started when his mom went to work at the store? You know what? Now that I'm saying it out loud, he's saying it started when his mom went to work. I still don't. He's trying to lay it out as like that Max has something to right. do with it. And it's a reach. And it didn't make any Big sense time. to me at all. I agree with that. It doesn't just it doesn't make like a reach sense. to me. Yeah, this complaint for me. So I did not care for the scene when Lucy calls the house to check on the boys and then has the panic attack when Sam starts screaming. I thought it actually mm-hmm. ruined a good scene because we have the scene of Michael realizing now that he can float per se or, or fly. Right. Right, because he kind of wakes up and he's actually on his ceiling. Correct. You know, these kids are 13, 17, 13, 18. I don't know. They're not three and eight. They can take care of themselves. Lucy let the kids run wild in the murder cap of the world. And now she's going to be calling them before her dinner in the middle of a dinner to check up on them. Like, no mom does that. You would only call if, hey, I'm going to be staying later. I told you to be home at 1030. I'm staying until 1130. Mm Mm-hmm. Trust your kids. You now that you bring that up, I totally agree, Bill. And I think there there was an issue with the ages of these kids, and that's in the research, right? Because there were early there were earlier versions of this story where the kids were much younger. We'll get into that a little bit, but this is kind of a nitpicky thing I had throughout, and I mentioned it again earlier that with Sam's age, he's supposed to, I believe, yeah, either thirteen or fourteen, but it seems as though he's younger. But he's not supposed to be younger. Right. Whether he's in the bathtub in the bubble bath and singing the song and doing spiky stuff with his hair, it feels like he's 10. True. Or 11 versus 13. 
And then with the mom calling and just kind of the thing, he just, he feels younger and it's a little weird and it's kind of nitpicky because it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. I would have liked it better if it was Michael was hanging outside the window and then Lucy was coming home and he's like, please, Sam, let me in. And then he finally pulls him in. And then Lucy comes to check mm-hmm. up on him and it's like, how are you guys doing? And Michael's trying to hide the fact that he's becoming a vampire. And do it that way. And he's like, oh, by the way, Max is coming over for dinner tomorrow. Just her having a panic attack. I'm like, if something's happening to Sam, she is not getting home in time. You might as well at least let Max go that you're running back to the house or call the police or something. You're not going to get mm-hmm. home in time. It just it ruined the right. scene for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. You don't have two little kids that are old enough that they can take care of themselves. That's true. That's true. Point taken. This is what I mean where they're deleted scenes. And obviously there are some, but I had mentioned like Sam saying, well, this all started with my mom went to work at Vax's video store. I was like, well, that's a reach. Was there a scene that's missing that establishes that? And then a little bit later on, we know that Michael has consummated his relationship with Star and a couple scenes happen in between. And then all of a sudden he's going out for the night. He's just like, no, I can't stick around. I'm going out because Lucy wants him to stick around for dinner because Max is coming over. He's like, nope, I'm out. And then we see Michael approach David at, I forget where they're, if they're at the cave or at a bar. I forget where they're at or at the boardwalk. And he goes right after David and says, where is Star? You tell me right now, where is Star? And I'm like, did I miss something? Did Star disappear in between the when you were just making love to her and now? why are you accosting David and asking? And then David's like, you have to come with me and everything will make sense or whatever it is. And I was like, when did she disappear? It's a weird moment. It didn't make any sense why Michael was so upset as to where Star was. We didn't know as an audience that she went anywhere. Where would she be? Like, why is he concerned? No, I'm with you. But yeah, I'll even go a step back. So here we have Michael who's turning into a vampire, but he has no idea what's happening to him. So he's going to go out and find some answers from Star, strange hot girl he just met. And instead of getting answers, uh, you know what? We're just going to have sex. <laughs> what? You're like freaking out because you don't you think you might be a vampire. I'm like, you know what? Uh, I still got Star here, so uh, might as well knock some boots. Yeah, teenage adolescence. You know, hormones are raging. Yep. Yeah, that's funny. I agree. Okay, so let's stick with the whole this dynamic. That being David, Star, and Michael. So I actually, there's a, a, a small scene where Star comes to Michael's home. And it's just kind of fun because Sam is in the middle of the scene. And he's looking down and he sees out of their window, he can see Star down on the ground below. And she's looking up and she's like, I need to talk to you, Michael. And Sam's like, and they're like, don't let her in. And Sam's like, is she a vampire too? And all of a sudden, then of course she appears in the window and he's like, yep, she's a yep. vampire too. And uh, she comes in and she explains to Michael that she is also in transition and that she needs to feed. So she's only half vampire, just like Michael. And she explains that Michael was supposed to be her first kill. She was going to complete her transmission into full vampire by killing Michael. I was thinking about this after I watched the movie again. And I was like, that makes sense then in the beginning why... She was flirting with him, and even though she was technically with David, she's flirting with Michael. She's luring Michael into a trap. She's setting the bait. Correct. 
However, David decides to initiate Michael instead of having or I think I can explain this. Okay, well, my complaint is is that if David's plan was to have Star feed on Michael, complete her transition, why did he bother with initiating Michael at all and allowed him to drink his own blood? And did David see something in Michael as if he could be Michael's mentor or wanted Michael really wanted Michael to be one of them and build his family a vampire gang or whatever? It didn't make any sense to me then as to why David would initiate. Right, this is this is my theory. So I think what happened was, yes, Star was initially going to have Michael as her first victim, but David got orders from Max after he had met Lucy. I need Michael to become one of us because that'll make it easier for Lucy to turn to be a vampire. So once David saw that star was going to use Michael as her first victim, David's like, I can't have you do this. I need him for a higher purpose. So it kind of superseded. Yeah. I, I think that's great. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think that makes complete sense. There's only one problem. Go ahead. You wouldn't put that together until the last scene of the movie. No. When you understand what Max's motivation was. So that's where I'm going. When Star tells Michael, you were supposed to be my first victim. I'm like, well, then why the hell was David going through the whole rigmarole with the initiation? But uh, yes, I believe you are right, Bill. And that's a great explanation. I think you're spot Mm -hmm. on. Totally makes sense. But I just hate that Michael's a dick to her and then... The next scene, he goes and saves her. That didn't make, yeah, I didn't buy that either. Michael, why Michael was being such a jerk to her because she's really vulnerable in that scene mm-hmm. and, and like pleading with him, coming to him and saying, Look, I'm just like you and I'm sick as well and we should be helping each other. But he kind of is just kind of being a jerk. Yeah. I got a question about vampire lore. Okay. Unless you got, are you ready to go with a, a complaint of your own? I'm going out. No, of go ahead. So we come to understand that. The reason why that great scene that you broke down for us when Max comes over to Lucy's for dinner and we have Sam and the uh, Frog Brothers trying to prove that Max is the head vampire and they fail. We come to understand later on that it was Michael's fault that he actually invited Max into the home, as which goes right alongside with vampire lore if you... The only way a vampire can enter your home is if you they, you invite them. Mm-hmm. And when, and Max explains in the final scene, Max explains that because Michael invited him into their home, they became powerless over him. Mm-hmm. And that then I read in the Wikipedia synopsis or whatever is the reason why either the garlic or, well, we know the garlic doesn't affect them, but the, the water or the reflection trick or whatever it was didn't work is that Anything they tried on him would fail because the, the, he was invited into the home. I'm confused by that. And on top of it, my real complaint is then, so this is the final action sequence, ladies and gentlemen. You'll be familiar with this if you've seen the million, a thousand, uh, the movie a thousand times, which most of you probably have, is that the final action sequence is, well, Michael and the Frog Brothers and Sam, they've killed one of the vampires. They killed Marco. So now... The rest of the vampire gang are out for blood, literally and figuratively, right? They come to Michael and Sam's house to kill them for revenge. And they burst into the house without being invited. They break in violently. So does that mean, I'm sorry, I'm going, wait a minute. 
I thought very clearly that a vampire had to be invited into, they can't just enter the home. But did that mean because Max as the head vampire had been invited in and rendered the family, the Emerson family powerless, that then any vampire could enter the home when they wished? All right. If you look back at maybe the original vampire movies, like a vampire would have to enter the house somehow to get his women victims. So he's never invited in that either. So I think it's if you're invited in, maybe it prevents you from being in your vampire state per se. So when the gang comes in, they come in, they can come in as vampires. Whereas if you're invited in, it almost hides your vampirism. Does that make sense? Because yeah, because technically when that. Max comes right. in the second time, he's not invited at the end and immediately turns into a vampire. I see what you're saying. So it's when, so technically it's very confusing because when Max says that when you invited me in, he's saying that he, Max, became powerless. Correct. Then, because he was invited Correct. in. Correct. And that's why. He can hide his vampirism. None of the. That's what I take from watching this movie. Well, any listener out there, if you have a reason why David and the rest of the vampire gang, the surviving members, were able to bust into the house for the final action sequence without being invited in, please let us know. But yeah, if you look at vampires, they can usually get in the They usually, you know, they'll come in the house at night and bite their victim and call it a day, and they're not usually invited. So I guess they can do that. But I think the way it is in this case, it seems like they have to be invited that helps them hide their vampirism that's what i'm going to go with but if i'm wrong please let us know yeah i've seen a version of the story where the vampire is in the form of a bat mm-hmm. flying through a window and then transforming back into human you know vampire human form and then but i don't know anyway we don't have to dwell on right it. this will be my last complaint so the death scene of paul the vampire the one who dies in the tub of holy water I think they mm-hmm. got ruined by like the overblown whole all of a sudden all the pipes burst in blood because I'm like, well, how would that actually happen? I thought it would have been better if, if they put him in the tub and then what's cool is because then the holy water literally eats him away. And then maybe like the tub foams and overflows and all this blood starts coming out of the tub. I'm like, why is the toilet collapsing? Why is all the pipes in the kitchen blowing up? Like, I get that, I think it was Edgar explains, like, every time you kill a vampire, they all die differently, which is like, okay, that's kind of a cool right. element to put into it, because we see that Marco dies different than Paul, who dies different than David, who dies different than Dwayne. But if you just focus more on Paul watching him dissolve in the tub, and then all this blood just overflows and starts flooding the back, I'm like, that would have just been a cooler effect to me. I don't know. That's just me. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. I think it's just agree. a stylistic I, I just... choice. It completely is just like, we're going for it. Correct. I, I mean, it's very, there's some real Sam Raimi aspects to that. Like, they're pushing in on like all these inanimate objects that are just flailing about because of the bursting of the vampire blood through it or, you know, pipes bursting, toilet opening up, whatever. It's way overdone. It's ridiculous. But like when we saw Marco get staked and his blood splattered everywhere all over the place, and he's falling down and, and still writhing in pain and squirting blood everywhere. They took that with this vampire in the holy water in the bathtub to the nth degree. It was like, okay, this guy, when he dies, not only is his blood going to splatter everywhere, it's going to infiltrate every you know, 
part of the mm-hmm. house and blow out, you know, come up through the kitchen sink, etc. So yeah, but it's way too much. I agree. Just stick to the stick to the tub and the skin coming off and the like the the skull effect was yeah. cool. The skeleton and the tub. Yeah, you know. kudos to Nanook there for that kill. Hell yeah. That yeah. was great. That was pretty badass, actually. That's a badass yeah. moment. Frog Brothers working with Nanook. I like it. You always like to see a dog protecting a human. Yeah. It just endears you more. Dog's man's best friend. Okay, it's time to move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? This week, our Hey, It's That actor is Kelly Jo Minter, who plays the role of Maria, who works behind the counter at Max's video store. Kelly Jo doesn't have any lines in this, but she's just got that look that we recognized. Kelly Jo Minter is from North Trenton, New Jersey, U.S. of A., she is an actress and producer known for A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child in 1989, and The People Under the Stairs from 1991. But we know her as Denise from Summer School from the same year, 1987. Like I said, great year for movies. And yes, Summer School was featured, was it last year, Bill? In first our year. Summer at the Cinema Series. It was the first yep. year. Sorry, excuse me. First year. Yeah, Summer School. Very first movie of this series. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. And in that film, if you recall, she uh, desperately needed to get her driver's license and pass her driver's test. And that led to some hijinks with Mark Harmon and Dave and Chainsaw trying to help her learn how to drive. Denise from Summer School. Yeah, Kelly Jo Minter. Great. Outside of film, Kelly has made guest appearances on a variety of television series, including Hill Street Blues. A Different World, Martin, ER, Providence, Strong Medicine. In 2010, she appeared as herself in the documentary Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy. Kelly was a handbag designer. She had a handbag collection known as KJO Los Angeles. Uh, She had started designing handbags around 2004. She's got four children. She's now 57 years old and seemed to be working as an actress all the way up to 2019. We love Kelly Jo Minter on this podcast, and she is this week's Hey, It's That Actor. Yeah, and she's in some blink-and-you-miss-it moments. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, that's, wait a second, I know her. And I thought for sure, I'm like, oh, we'll see her in another scene. And nope, another blink-and-you-might-miss-her. She might be on the screen for eight seconds, if that much. Yeah, she's adorable. And immediately, it's like, I know that girl. Why do I know that girl? Oh, my gosh, yep. summer school. Right. All right, takes us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the Lost Boys? Last year was the Lost Boys' 35th anniversary, and Entertainment Weekly did an article named The Lost Boys 35 Years Later and interviewed Alex Winter, Corey Feldman, and Jameson Newlander. And the first question was regarding why the Lost Boys still resonates all these years later. And Alex Winter replied, I think it's the most successful interpretation of all the things director Joel Schumacher did well, which was fashion and music and understanding actors and story and style. And I'm just going to call a spade a spade. Homoeroticism and sexual ambiguity and sexual adventurousness. So few people really had a forward vision and Joel coming from fashion really did know where things were going. So he and costume designer Susie Becker and production designer Bo Welch They were doing things that almost didn't make sense to the studio at the time of that summer. 
But by the time it came out, it was like the thing. And then Corey Feldman goes to respond to the same question with, the story is rooted in family. So even though it's a fictional story and it's got all this crazy stuff going on, the whole base of it is about these three families and how they intertwine if you really think about it. So it's a family film. A lot of people don't realize that, but that was something that Joel was always very cognizant of. And I think that is something that really hits home and makes it feel naturalistic. It's not just a science fiction movie. It's not just a vampire movie. It's that true virtuous piece of it. So a couple different takes on it. Yeah. Um, so the Lost Boys was screenwriters Janice Fisher and James Jeremiah's first film. The script was purchased for $400,000. That's a lot of moolah. Dang, that's pretty awesome. Well, speaking of Jeremiah's, the film's title is a reference to the characters featured in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan stories, who, like vampires, never grow old. Jeremiah's said, I had read Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, and in that, there was a 200-year-old vampire trapped in the body of a 12-year-old girl. And since Peter Pan had been one of my all-time favorite stories, I thought, what if the reason Peter Pan came out at night and never grew up and could fly was because he was a vampire? I like that. It's a nice theory. It tracks. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. So after an accident while doing a wheelie on his motorcycle, Kiefer Sutherland ended up with a broken wrist and an inconvenient cast. So the costume department fitted him with gloves to hide his injury on camera. Did not notice it. Good job. Yeah. And even after I read it, I kind of was looking for it and I didn't catch it. I wasn't looking that hard, but it wasn't obvious to me. So that worked. Absolutely. hundred percent. The film was originally set to be directed by Richard Donner and Fisher and Jeremiah's screenplay was modeled on Donner's recent hit, The Goonies. In this way, the film was envisioned as more of a juvenile vampire adventure with 13 or 14-year-old vampires, while the Frog Brothers were chubby 8-year-old Cub Scouts, and the character of Star was actually a young boy. So when Donner committed to other projects, Joel Schumacher was approached to direct the film, and uh, he came up with the idea of making the film sexier and more adult, bringing on screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm to retool the script and raise the ages of the characters. That's what I was talking about earlier. That's, you know, so there was a change. The, these characters were all supposed to be younger. Yeah. And that may be a little bit why it feels like Sam's, Sam's characters, actually. Place. Yeah. So Santa Clara's moniker as murder capital of the world was based on reality. Three separate killers, John Lindley Frazier, Herbert Mullen, and Edmund Kemper, murdered 28 people in Santa Cruz, where this movie was filmed, in the span of 30 months from 1970 to 1973. That's crazy, man. I know of Edmund Kemper because of the show Mindhunter, actually. I, I didn't know of him before that, which is a great show, actually. That's uh, kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, this was Corey Haim and Corey Feldman's first film together, which marked the start of a popular 1980s trend, The Two Corys in which Feldman and Haim starred together in a number of teenage films. When David's hand steers his stream of light in the vampire cave, we see him uh, tear up. That tear was not originally in the script and was instead because Kiefer Sutherland's contacts were irritating his eyes. They decided to keep that shot in the film. I'm glad they did. I totally. actually did like that. It's a great moment, and I forgot to mention it because that was one of my favorite scenes, and I totally missed it. And I thought it was appropriate on two levels. One, because his hand is burnt, but as if he was actually mourning the loss of Marco. Yep. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Both the bandstand that the band is playing on for the first time Michael C. Star 
and the Frog Brothers comic book shop. They were both destroyed in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. I like this part. The new location of the Atlantis Fantasy World comic book store, which was featured in the film, is owned by Joe Ferrara II, who still carries the original number one issue of Vampires Everywhere that Sam reads in the film. The comic was created only for the film, and its opening page is signed by all of the cast members from the movie. The owner, Joe Ferrara II, allows any shopper to hold it and take a photo with it free of charge. Gonna have to make a pilgrimage. That's pretty fun. Yeah. That is it for me with facts and trivia. Yeah, we can keep it going. All right, let's move on to box office. So The Lost Boys was released on July 31st, 1987 in 1,027 theaters. On an estimated budget of $8.5 million, it grossed $32.3 million domestically. It debuted number two at the box office behind Timothy Dalton's debut as James Bond in The Living Daylights. It stayed in the top 10 for an additional three weeks. The Lost Boys was the 36th highest grossing movie in the United States in 87, just ahead of Can't Buy Me Love, which we covered way back in episode four of our podcast. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the late 80s, we would watch At the Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of The Lost Boys was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Roger thought the movie started with a lot of interesting material, but the ending just becomes an action film that jettisons all the interesting ideas. It was a close miss. Gene thought it was an overstuffed picture with too many characters, too many ideas, and ends with a vampire fight that was just exhausting. It was a picture he could have liked. Huh. So they're both on the border on that one. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 77%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.2. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. There's some additional thoughts and questions you have about The Lost Boys. Here's a quick one for you, Bill Band. Have you seen either of the sequels? I saw the first one. Was that The Tribe? Is that the first one? Yeah, it was direct to DVD. Lost Boys, yeah. The Tribe, released in 2008. And the only thing I remember about it is that Corey Hay makes a cameo at the end. I don't remember anything else about the movie. Yep. Corey Feldman returned as Edgar Frog with a cameo by Corey Haim as Sam Emerson. Kiefer Sutherland's half-brother Angus Sutherland played the lead vampire, Shane Powers. And then the third film was Lost Boys The Thirst, which was released on DVD in 2010. And Feldman was an executive producer on that one, also, again, playing Edgar Frog. And Jameson Newlander returned as Alan Frog. Unfortunately, Haim, who was not slated to be a part of the cast, died in March 2010. A fourth film was discussed as well as, as a Frog Brothers television show, but with the dissolution of Warner premiere, the projects evaporate. So yeah, I haven't seen either. I'm not even sure I knew they existed, to be honest. I kind of knew they did because they had that show, maybe it was A&E, The Two Corys, and it was then oh, sure. yeah, reuniting. Yeah, yeah. That I was aware of. And they of, yeah. talked about the movie. And then Marwan, Hillary, and I went to a horror convention. And we actually met Corey Haim there. Oh, really? Yeah, and I think maybe he was promoting that. I don't know if I yeah. knew that. That's awesome. My wife had a serious crush on him. So oh, sure. She got the shake hands. I don't think we did That's a picture of that. That's cool. That's great. All right, so just a word of advice for our fans. If they ever want to do a drinking game of uh, The Lost Boys, 
and you have a drink every time you hear the word Michael, please do not do that. You will be dead because Michael's name is said 118 times in this movie. That's great. And that is insane. Yeah. Oh, man. So you can count along, but don't do shots with those. All right. So fair warning. You've been warned. Do not do that. You would not be held responsible. Here's my little Joel Schumacher side story. Okay. And this just brought back a random weird memory of mine. So a long time ago, this had to have been, I guess it was mid, late 2000s. Well, we'll, f- we'll figure this out. I had my friends from the University of Miami move out here with me. Shout out Brian and Alf and Sharice, uh, but also another mutual friend of ours uh, named Yulin. He was in the theater program at the U, talented guy. I believe he it's either he befriended someone in the biz who is behind the scenes. There was two girls I recall and gosh, I hate the fact that I can't remember their names. But I was looking for I believe some additional work in addition, you know, in addition to waiting tables at the time. I got a side gig as a driver for a gentleman that worked at Sony Pictures. He worked on the Sony lot and I had to pick up his daughter from school and I think it was grade school. I think she may have been in eighth grade. And I had to take her from school to the Sony lot. And it was only once or twice a week at most. It was like once a week. So that was a side gig. And he just paid me cash. Really, really sweet guy. Nice family. The daughter was really sweet and polite. And so one day I dropped her off the lot and I'll never forget seeing a purple Lamborghini parked outside. I either had some clearance I got onto the lot. And parked and then made sure I, I walked her into the building, make sure she got to her dad in his office, et cetera. And then I saw the Lamborghini. I was like, wow, that's that's uh, pretty flamboyant. And that looks pretty awesome, too. At the same time, go inside. And there was Sh- Joel Schumacher walking by, going into an office. And I assumed, actually, that for whatever reason, that that car most likely belonged to Nicolas Cage. Because it all added up then. I believe that was the year that they had either just shot or were shooting uh, 8mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So um, just random. I forgot that I even had that gig for a brief period of time. And that I did have a Joel Schumacher sighting. Anywho. I'm going to go with the, the big question, Bill Bant. Okay. And that's, you know, either your favorite vampire movie of all time. You you mentioned uh, already, yeah, one of your favorites. But you got also then Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. You've got the Twilight series, the Twilight franchise. You've got Once Bitten, Jim Carrey. Uh, <laughs> you've got uh, Blade or Blade Two, Fright Night, Vampires Kiss, Interview with a Vampire. I actually liked Dracula Untold with Luke Evans. Oh, you had mentioned Bella Lugosi. Wasn't that there was a? I never saw the whole film. And I, I need to, one starring Willem Dafoe, where he actually, doesn't he play Bella Lugosi? So that one's, that's actually like my top three. So Dracula, of course, the Bella Lugosi version of 1931. And then a movie came out, I think it's 2000. It's called Shadow of the Vampire. Yes, that's right. And I it was, yeah. So it's about the making of Nosferatu, which is technically, I think, the first vampire movie on film. And the whole premise is, is that the vampire that they use in that movie is an actual vampire. And I think right. it's played by Willem Dafoe and it's got um, okay. John Malkovich in it. Yeah. And that's a good one. And then I would say my third favorite, and it's either version of Let the Right One In, about the boy that gets bullied and he befriends 
a vampire that just happens to live next door. It's a young, young girl. I like both versions of it. Bill Bant, I agree. That's my number one. My number one is Let the Right One In. It is a Swedish film from 2008 directed by Tomas Alfredson with an amazing score. And I adore that film. Talk about a vibe. I'll still watch that film and just become completely immersed in it. It's just a feeling that movie provides. And I agree. The American version, just uh, short and titled, called Let Me In, was directed by none other than Matt Reeves, our new Batman director. Yes. And I do like Matt Reeves a lot. But yeah, the original Let the Right One In is, that's, I'm all about it. What else you got for some thoughts, questions? All right, two questions. First one, how long do you think David and his group are vampires? How long have they been vampires? Yeah. Do you think they recently turned or they've been there decades, maybe a century? That's a great question. That's a great question. I have no idea. It's like there's no point of reference really yeah. in the movie to give you any idea. So, because I would, I am now immediately thinking it's not as if anyone in the town or at the boardwalk necessarily recognize them and go, oh, it's those guys. Like they've known them, they've been around forever, but right. maybe they do. I don't know. You don't can't really tell one way or the other. Um, so, and then it must have been Max that turned them all, or mm-hmm. Max turned at least one of those four, most likely David. Right. That's a great question. How old are they? If they, let's say they were 300 years old mm-hmm. and they had been residing there forever, probably someone would have said something or noticed. But this brings up a complaint I didn't even get, I didn't bring up which is the fact that grandpa. That was my next question. Go ahead. Apparently he shows up at the end to literally save the day and kills Max. He drives a truck right through his own house, armed with a bunch of wooden stakes on the front of it, full on road warrior style and impales Max and Max explodes. Great ending, except for the fact that, well, hey, grandpa, Grandpa reveals with his, uh, what was his, uh, he, had a, he has a great line. It's the last line of the film. He says, one thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach all the damn vampires. Funny line. And I'm like, hey, Grandpa, could have mentioned that earlier, pal, that you knew about the vampires this entire time. Credit to the film, there is a little subtle hint because when Max does show up for dinner, you see grandpa kind of like looking around like, hmm, I don't trust this guy. I was like, so grandpa knows that vampires have existed in this town for some time. So yeah, maybe these vampires are super old. I just don't know. So my next question will be, what did you think of the grandpa character? I think it was a little too much. Oh yeah. He's a goofball. He's just kind of in the background. Mm -hmm. I don't know what purpose he serves except for showing up to save the day at the end. Right. And besides just being goofy. Yeah. Like some of it worked, some of it didn't. No, I agree. We didn't mention that in Fun Facts and Trivia is that that's how Jamie Gertz ended up being in this film is that, yeah, apparently Jason Patrick had some sway because he really wanted Jamie Gertz in this movie after his experience uh, shooting Solar Babies with Jamie Gertz. Yeah, a movie. We'll have to be doing this podcast for a really, really long time if we're ever going to do Solar Babies. Really, Uh really long time. Let's move on to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five vampires, what do you give the Lost Boys? I'm going to give this uh, three and a half vampires. Simply put, great cast. It's fun. 
Such an 80s movie. It was made for the times, and it's maybe stuck in those times. That's all right. For me, no substance. The vampire lore is all over the place. But the performances are charming or alluring enough to carry it through. The action is directed well enough. There's some great makeup effects. Didn't mention that. Credit to the makeup team. Everybody looks hot, and I enjoy going back to the late 80s for an hour and a half. All good by me. Three and a half for me. How about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, I thought before I even watched this, you know, you kind of have a rating in your head. And I thought I was like, I might give it three or three and a half. But after watching this again, and just, um, I just think the influence it's had on future vampire films, I bumped it all the way up to a four, to be wow. honest. Wow, yeah, sure, okay, all right. And once again, I'm always super, like, I love the soundtrack. I'm always super nostalgic to watch actors in their early roles. And, they got, you know, we have a ton in this one. You know, I just think it's a it's a fun vampire movie. It's not super scary, but it's got a whole bunch of elements. I, I know it is a little bit all over the place, but I just couldn't believe. I think I watched it three times for this. I couldn't believe each time I was like, it's over already. This went super fast. So, oh, it's, yeah, it's a sure. fun, quick watch. And I know there's a lot of fans that are way into this more than uh, we are put together. But uh, glad we uh, went back on this one. I appreciate your opinion, your take on it. And thanks for mentioning the fact that Yeah, it set the stage for so many vampire tales to come. And uh, in the research, uh, they give it a lot of credit for kind of setting up uh, big shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So there you go. It definitely uh, has its place in our own lore of film history. And uh, yeah, was a real influence. So good stuff, Bill. Okay, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, our Summer at the Cinema series concludes. As we discuss Stand By Me, starring Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Jerry O'Connell, and Corey Feldman. Again, we hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. Now you know what we are. Now you know what you are. You'll never grow old, Michael, and you'll never die, but you must feed. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>